I cannot forget that I was crowned Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. That wish has never deserted me through a half century during which you have seen turmoil and tragedy. Friendship which links us to our great ally, the United States of America, is a powerful element in the defense of peace. My lords and members of the House of Commons, I pray that the blessing of Almighty God may rest upon your councils. The real soul of the Commonwealth, the motor, the drive, call it what you will, is provided by people within and without those governments. Like all the best families, we have our share of eccentricities, of impetuous and wayward youngsters, <laughs> and of family disagreements. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. It has turned out to be an annus horribilis. I, for one, believe there are lessons to be drawn from her life and from the extraordinary and moving reaction to her death. All too often, I fear Prince Philip has had to listen to me speaking. But he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. For if a jubilee becomes a moment to define an age, then for me, we must speak of change. Change has become a constant. Managing it has become an expanding discipline. The way we embrace it defines our future. God help me to make good my vow. And God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. You're listening to The Queen's Speeches. In 1940, Hitler began to bomb England. Thousands of children were evacuated, among them Elizabeth and Margaret, now 14 and 10, who were sent up the Thames to a safer haven. Well, the outbreak of, of World War II affected the British royal family hugely because um, they were right up there at Buckingham Palace, which was a, a, a big, big target for the German bombers. But they decided that they would not leave the country, they would stay there with their people, and, um, but they obviously had to look after their two daughters. Elizabeth and Margaret eventually stayed at Windsor Castle for five years while the king and queen went to London during the week. Of the 500 German planes that came over that day, more than one-third were shot down. In the 28 days of terror from September 7th to October 5th, the Nazis dropped 50 million pounds of bombs on the city, killed 7,000 helpless civilians, and wounded 10,000 more. Bombs fell on Buckingham Palace. Westminster Abbey. The Houses of Parliament. Princess Elizabeth made her first public speech in October 1940, during the dark early days of the Second World War, when she was just 14 years old. Well, in, in October 1940, 
um, the king and queen paid a visit to the BBC and the chairman of the BBC asked them if there was any chance that perhaps his eldest daughter might contribute to the children, uh, the evacuees who were in Canada, Australia, um, North America. Um, there were a lot of them there and they had a program called Children's Hour which was embryonic then and they asked the king if he would consider allowing his daughter to do it. Well, of course, she was thrilled to do it and practiced very, very hard. And eventually, age, age uh, only 14, gave this extremely professional speech to the children that were separated from their parents. Five famous little hearts are stirred as the Dion Quince listened to a broadcast from London by Princess Elizabeth, a message of cheer to children of the empire. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say goodnight to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night, and good luck to you all. Because uh, Princess Elizabeth always thinking about her younger sister. She brought her younger sister in at the very end and said, come on, Margaret. And come on, Margaret became a catchphrase in America. The, 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 the speech went down an absolute storm in America. And um, it was like headline news in the New York Post, you know, that, the, that this princess had given this speech to the evacuees. So, and also politically, it was a very good thing because of course Churchill was trying to get uh, the president, Roosevelt, you know, to enter into the war on our, 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 you know, to support us. So anything that we could do uh, was a good thing. The Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. One of the most famous and memorable of her speeches was made when she was still a relatively young princess, aged just 21. This iconic moment was recorded when the vivacious young princess was with her mother, father and younger sister in Cape Town, South Africa, on the first royal tour following World War II. The princess solemnly pledged herself to a life of service and duty. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. The speech is frequently referenced as she remains to this day fulfilling those duties into her late 90s after 70 years on the throne, smiling her way through official engagements long after most of us will have retired.
Operation on the King, we read, and knew how ill he was. But success seemed to crown the skill of the surgeon. But now the king is dead. Following the death of her father, the young princess became our queen. She stepped up to her role very quickly. Upon her coronation in June 1953, she spoke to the nation and to the Commonwealth. It remained for crowds at the palace to pay their loyal tribute. The Queen's journey was over. Her own feeling on the day no one will ever forget, she summed up later in her broadcast. As this day draws to its close, I know that my abiding memory of it will be not only the solemnity and beauty of the ceremony, but the inspiration of your loyalty and affection. I thank you all from a full heart. God bless you all. Elizabeth had not expected to become queen in her 20s, so she had to learn quickly. Public speaking was a significant part of the job and was something she had seen her own father struggle with. He spent years with a speech therapist attempting to overcome his stammer. But with that royal tenacity, he delivered one of the most famous and historical speeches, his address to the nation in 1939, marking the start of World War II. Elizabeth took great inspiration from her father. Quickly adapting to her new life as queen, she made a great impression on the public whilst carrying out her duties. It is a real pleasure to have an opportunity so early in my reign of visiting such a beautiful part of the Principality and to see that the natural beauty of these Welsh hills has not been impaired by this vast work of modern engineering. I thank you, my Lord Mayor, for the kind terms of your loyal welcome to myself and my husband. In the clearing open the Clarewon Reservoir, I congratulate you and all concerned with it on the completion of this great undertaking and express my good wishes for its successful operation. A speech the Queen perhaps wished she didn't have to make so early in her life was when she unveiled a statue of her father in 1955. Indeed, she recollects watching her father do the same only a matter of a few years before. Eight years ago, I heard the moving words which my father spoke when he unveiled the statue of King George V, which stands by the Houses of Parliament. I did not think then that in so short a time I should be called to take his place. But it is with pride that I unveil this noble statue today. In his broadcast, and his visits to the Empire and to Commonwealth countries. He made himself a friend of his people all over the world. And as the first British sovereign to enter the United States of America, 
He made a signal contribution to Anglo-American understanding. In my name and on behalf of my dear mother and all the members of my family, I thank the National Committee and those who have helped to provide this worthy memorial. And I now ask my Minister of Work to take it into his charge and to maintain it for all time. For many of us Britons, a staple of our Christmas celebrations is sitting down at 3pm sharp to watch or listen to the Queen's Christmas message. The Queen's speech has become an important and pivotal moment of the year. Each Christmas at this time, my beloved father broadcast a message to his people in all parts of the world. Today, I am doing this to you who are now my people. The tradition was started in 1932 by King George V with a radio broadcast. And since Elizabeth took her place on the throne in 1952, she has delivered her Christmas message each year, first on radio and later on television, and more recently online too. Pray that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. In August 1957, a controversial article was published, written by John Grigg, also known as Lord Altrincham. It criticised the Queen, the way she spoke and looked, describing her as that of a priggish schoolgirl. Interestingly, Lord Altrincham was not a Republican, he was a monarchist, he believed in the power a strong and relevant monarchy could hold for the people, but he felt the courtiers were wildly outdated and stuck in bygone times, not what was needed for a modern young queen and not what the people needed at that time. Lord Altrincham was interviewed on television about his controversial article. Could I put one point to you? Aren't you falling yourself into the error of expecting the Queen to be endowed with superhuman powers, which is an attitude I'm sure you will get? I mean, to judge from your article, you expect the Queen to have qualities of a wit. Uh, you would like her to be a better orator. You would like her to be a TV personality, in addition to being a diligent, dutiful, and uh, devoted monarch and a mother. No, I, 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 I would certainly be expecting a lot, and, and it would be expecting the impossible. Not, not, not that she may not have many of those qualities, but certainly it would be impossible to expect people to have qualities they haven't got. What I'm suggesting is, is that in her public speeches and appearances, spontaneity should be the keynote. There are obviously certain speeches which have to be rather carefully prepared and which are of their very nature rather ceremonial. But I think that most of her speeches would, would greatly benefit from being more natural, from e even if they're prepared, uh, from seeming to be the sort of speech that she would make. And not obviously made by somebody else and written for her by somebody else. Of course, the, there is this problem that Her Majesty's speeches have to be uh, bear in mind certain constitutional matters and therefore they must be uh, prepared by her constitutional advisers who may be in Britain or Canada or yes. anywhere all over the world. Yeah, yeah, I quite agree, but, uh, and, and, and uh, that, that's what I was thinking of when I said there's a certain type of rather ceremonial speech which obviously has to be rather carefully mulled over. But uh, let's face it, I mean, there are masses of speeches of a, of a more informal kind, or which should be of a more informal kind, which are at the moment made in a thoroughly formal way. 
And all I, I, I would like to see is the Queen's own character coming through. And I know that if her character is allowed to come through, the effect will be terrific. The effect at the moment is frankly not terrific, and that's not a criticism of her, that's a criticism of the way the thing is organised. There was outrage at his criticism at the time, so much so, he even got slapped across the face. But Lord Aldringham persisted. He suggested multiple reforms to help the monarchy modernise and to become more relevant. The monarchy had to open up and be more visible, and one of his suggestions was that she broadcast her Christmas speech on television, which she went on to do in December 1957. Today is another landmark because television has made it possible for many of you to see me in your homes on Christmas Day. I cannot lead you into battle. I do not give you laws or administer justice, but I can do something else. I can give you my heart and my devotion to these old islands and to all the peoples of our brotherhood of nations. From 1960, the Christmas message was recorded in advance so that it could be sent around the world to all the Commonwealth countries and be broadcast at an appropriate time. The Queen always chooses the theme of the speech. It is a speech in which she does not take government advice, but instead she gives her own thoughts and views on the events of the year and her hopes for the year ahead. Before he died, Prince Philip often helped the Queen in writing this message. Philip was influential in 1983, when the computer age was fast developing, and the Queen spoke about the ways in which technologies could not replace humans. Electronics cannot create comradeship. Computers cannot generate compassion. Satellites cannot transmit tolerance. In recent times, she dedicated the broadcast to her beloved husband, Prince Philip. Following his death in 2021, her Christmas message that year focused on the gratitude she has for the tributes made across the world to her late husband. His sense of service, intellectual curiosity, and capacity to squeeze fun out of any situation were all irrepressible. That mischievous, inquiring twinkle was as bright at the end as when I first set eyes on him. The Christmas message is not simply a duty for the Queen, but a chance to really connect with her people, a unifying moment that the country and the Commonwealth of Nations look forward to each year. Meanwhile, through the gates of Buckingham Palace in London, Queen Elizabeth rides in state to open the new session of Parliament. Not since Victoria's Day has a reigning queen presided at the ceremony, and a huge crowd turns out to hail the young sovereign. It is an occasion of great splendor and pageantry. Londoners cheer their gracious and vibrant queen, wearing a gold brocade dress and diamond and pearl tiara. The coach reaches the House of Lords, ringed by royal guards. The Parliament ceremony's over, Elizabeth leaves Westminster on the triumphal return journey to the acclaim of the vast throng. And then, to the crowd's delight, the children, Prince Charles and Princess Anne, join the Duke. Friendship which links us to our great ally, the United States of America, is a powerful element in the defense of peace. Throughout the coming session, 
My government will continue to give resolute support to the work of the United Nations. One of the Queen's duties includes opening each new session of Parliament, a fascinating event steeped in history and tradition going back hundreds of years. It is symbolically important, but it also clearly demonstrates the separation of the monarchy from the workings of Parliament, a vital principle of the British constitutional monarchy. After much preamble and the ceremonial arrival of the Sovereign and her regalia, the Queen awaits the MPs, the members of the House of Commons. Black Rod, a title as well as an actual black piece of wood, walks through to the Commons, where the door is slammed in their face, symbolizing the independence of the Commons from the monarchy. They knock three times on the same piece of worn and battered wood, which has been in place for centuries, and the door is opened, thus allowing them to enter and to summon the MPs to pay attention to their monarch in the House of Lords. It is one of the occasions when we see our Queen in ceremonial robes and with the Imperial State Crown, though in recent years she has opted for the crown to be placed alongside her due to its weight. The Queen will then read a speech written by her government about what they want to achieve during the next term in Parliament. A bill will be introduced to remove the right of hereditary peers to sit and vote in the House of Lords. It will be the first stage in a process of reform to make the House of Lords more democratic and representative and speedily to bring forward proposals for reform. These early speeches to Parliament in her long and remarkable reign set the standard for decades to come. The Irish state coach takes Britain's royal family to the opening of Parliament an occasion steeped in traditional pomp and ceremony. Queen Elizabeth makes her annual speech from the throne on this day, outlining government policy. Princess Anne with future King Prince Charles accompany their parents for the first time. The Queen's speech, written by Prime Minister Wilson, includes the announcement that a seat in the House of Lords will no longer be hereditary, an ancient tradition. This is to correct political imbalance. There have been only three occasions where the Queen was not able to officiate at the state opening of Parliament. In 1959 and in 1963, when she was pregnant with Prince Andrew and Prince Edward respectively. And recently, in 2022, where Prince Charles and Prince William stepped in due to Her Majesty's post-Covid fatigue. My government believe in open government. Consultation on draft legislation is a contribution to this. They propose that a draft Freedom of Information Bill be given pre-legislative scrutiny in both houses. My Lords and members of the House of Commons, I pray that the blessing of Almighty God may rest upon your councils. Of course our association is more than a partnership of governments. The real soul of the Commonwealth, the motor, the drive, call it what you will, is provided by people within and without those governments. One of the great success stories of the Queen's decades on the throne is the growth of the Commonwealth of Nations, of which she is the head. 
She took over the role from her father, which was not an inherited role, but one chosen by the countries of the Commonwealth. It is a largely symbolic role, but her influence and diplomacy has seen the Commonwealth of Nations grow to a staggering 54 countries. Next morning, Britannia sailed into the home port of the Malaysian Navy, Lamut, bringing the Queen on a short visit to the state of Perak and to the town of Ipoh. At the end of her state visit, the Queen reboarded Britannia to meet individually and at dinner the 49 Commonwealth heads of government meeting here in Malaysia. She greeted the outgoing Secretary-General Sonny Ramphail, and the Queen was delighted to welcome Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto and Pakistan's return to the Commonwealth. The head of the Commonwealth attends the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, during which the Queen will meet with country's leaders, attend a reception, and importantly, deliver a carefully crafted speech. In the 1989 summit, the Queen fondly remarked on how the Commonwealth feels like family. The Queen reminded her guests that when they last met for dinner on Britannia in Nassau four years ago, they'd lost their way at sea and were late. Unlike the last occasion on which we gathered for dinner in Britannia. I'm delighted to see you all here on time and in good order. <laughs> it is essentially a family gathering. Like all the best families, we have our share of eccentricities, of impetuous and wayward youngsters, <laughs> and of family disagreements. But we also have our wise uncles and aunts <laughs> and the solid, dependable family members on whom everyone relies. In 1947, Elizabeth and her sister Margaret and her mother and father enjoyed a three-month trip to South Africa. It was during this trip that Elizabeth made her famous speech dedicating her life to the service of her people. It was clearly a trip that the Queen would never forget. South Africa left the Commonwealth in 1961, and the Queen did not visit again until she was welcomed back by Nelson Mandela in 1995, following South Africa's return to the Commonwealth in 1994. She spoke fondly of her desire throughout the intervening years to return to the country. My memories of South Africa are part of me and I have wanted to return to this magnificent country. That wish has never deserted me through a half century during which you have seen turmoil and tragedy. Now, though, you have become one nation whose spirit of reconciliation is a shining example to the world. It is widely known that the Queen and Nelson Mandela quickly formed a strong bond, and they enjoyed a true and enduring friendship until his death in 2013. Mandela happily flouted the formality of custom and tradition, and he is one of the few to simply call her Elizabeth, something in which the Queen took great delight. You have yourself provided the leadership, and by your willingness to embrace your former captors, have set the course towards national reconciliation and freedom 
for all the people of South Africa. As we approach the 21st century, our relationship is one of friendship, fortified on South Africa's side by a warmth and respect for yourself, for Britain, and for the Commonwealth. In 2018, the Queen made a speech reflecting on the Commonwealth and the enormous changes that have been made during her time as its head. As we know, though the role is not hereditary, she has expressed her wish that her son, Prince Charles, will take on the role when the time comes. When I meet the young leaders of this century, I remember my own lifelong commitment made in South Africa in 1947 at the age of 21. As another birthday approaches this week, I am reminded of the extraordinary journey we have been on and how much good has been achieved. It remains a great pleasure and honour to serve you as head of the Commonwealth and to observe with pride and satisfaction that this is a flourishing network. It is my sincere wish that the Commonwealth will continue to offer stability and continuity for future generations and will decide that one day the Prince of Wales should carry on the important work started by my father in 1949. In 1992, a year that celebrated the 40th anniversary of her reign, the Queen made a rather memorable speech. Famously known as her Annus Horribilis, the Queen reflects on the events of 1992. It was a year that rocked the entire House of Windsor, as Charles and Diana announced their separation, and Andrew and Fergie split up. The final hammer blow was when Windsor Castle was badly damaged by fire caused by a faulty spotlight. A curtain caught upon a light in the chapel at Windsor Castle and it just blazed and the fire raced through all the state departments. It was a huge fire. Um, but lucky, very, very few things were lost. But it was devastating. And then the Prime Minister asked the country if they would be prepared to pay for the reconstruction of Windsor Castle, and basically the Queen's subject said no. I mean, although Windsor Castle is an official state building, not her own, uh, the, the general consensus was that we didn't want to pay for it. So then the Queen um, had to pay tax, and um, it just really wasn't a good year. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. <clears throat> In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an annus horribilis. I suspect that I'm not alone in thinking it so. Indeed, I suspect that there are very few people of, or institutions unaffected by these last months of worldwide turmoil and uncertainty. This generosity and wholehearted kindness of the corporation of the city to Prince Philip and me would be welcome at any time. But at this particular moment, in the aftermath of Friday's tragic fire at Windsor, it is especially so.
I sometimes wonder how future generations will judge the events of this tumultuous year. I dare say that history will take a slightly more moderate view than that of some contemporary commentators. There can be no doubt, of course, that criticism is good for people and institutions that are part of public life. No institution, city, monarchy, whatever, should expect to be free from the scrutiny of those who give it their loyalty and support, not to mention those who don't. But we are all part of the same fabric of our national society, and that scrutiny by one part of another can be just as effective if it is made with a touch of gentleness, good humour and understanding. The Queen's reign has seen many challenges for Her Majesty. The 1990s were a particularly troubling decade, which came to an end with the unfortunate death of Diana, Princess of Wales. It was a shocking moment for us all. The Queen was informed of her death while spending the summer at Balmoral Castle. At the time, the young princes, William and Harry, were with the family in Scotland, and the Queen, Prince Philip and Prince Charles agreed it would be best to keep the boys at Balmoral whilst they dealt with the initial shock of what had happened. The British people too were in mourning, and there was growing unease and criticism of the Queen, fueled by the tabloid media, that Her Majesty was staying silent on the whole matter of Diana's death. Reacting quickly to the media furore, the Queen and the rest of the family travelled back to London making a live speech from Buckingham Palace and offering her own touching tribute to Diana. So when the Queen and Philip um, arrived in London from Balmoral, uh, there were crowds and crowds of, of, of people outside Buckingham Palace and flowers, and the Queen was actually very nervous because there was such an atmosphere. I mean, I was there, I remember the atmosphere was sort of, you almost felt that there was gonna be a revolution but she walked through the crowd and it was sort of, for the moment it was silent and then uh, a lady handed her some flowers and she said, oh, shall I put them by the gate? She said, no, ma'am, they're for you. And that broke the tension. And she, after that, it was all right. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. I, for one, believe there are lessons to be drawn from her life and from the extraordinary and moving reaction to her death. I share in your determination to cherish her memory. I hope that tomorrow we can all, wherever we are, join in expressing our grief at Diana's loss and gratitude for her all too short life. It is you, if I may now speak to all of you directly, who have seen us through and helped us to make our duty fun. We are deeply grateful to you, each and every one. 
It is no secret that Prince Philip has always been the love of our Queen's life. Married in 1947, Elizabeth and Philip have shared the longest marriage in British royal history, an astounding 73 years of love and commitment to one another, until his sad death in 2021. It is very rare for the Queen to express personal thoughts and feelings, but on her golden wedding anniversary in 1997, she spoke about her husband, Prince Philip. Yesterday, I listened as Prince Philip spoke at the Guildhall, and I then proposed our host's health. Today, the roles are reversed. All too often, I fear Prince Philip has had to listen to me speaking. Frequently, we have discussed my intended speech beforehand, and as you will imagine, his views have been expressed in a forthright manner. <laughs> he is someone who doesn't take easily to compliments, but he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. And I and his whole family, and this and many other countries, owe him a debt greater than he would ever claim, or we shall ever know. Prime Minister, thank you for helping us to celebrate a very special day in our lives. The Queen, though unlucky to lose her father at such a young age, was fortunate to have her mother as an integral part of her life for another five decades. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, died in 2002 and, struck by the public affection and tributes, the Queen made one of her rare personal addresses, thanking the public for their kind wishes. Over the years, I have met many people who have had to cope with family loss, sometimes in the most tragic of circumstances. So I count myself fortunate that my mother was blessed with a long and happy life. She had an infectious zest for living, and this remained with her until the very end. I know too that her faith was always a great strength to her. At the ceremony tomorrow, I hope that sadness will blend with a wider sense of thanksgiving, not just for her life, but for the times in which she lived. A century for this country and the Commonwealth, not without its trials and sorrows, but also one of extraordinary progress, full of examples of courage and service, as well as fun and laughter. This is what my mother would have understood, because it was the warmth and affection of people everywhere which inspired her resolve, dedication, and enthusiasm for life. Religion has played an important role in our monarch's life, and one important part of her responsibilities as queen and head of state is as defender of the faith. In a speech made in February 2012 at a multi-faith reception at Lambeth Palace, the queen delivered a strong and powerful speech defending the rights of each individual to follow their own religious faith and beliefs or not. Here at Lambeth Palace, we should remind ourselves of the significant position of the Church of England in our nation's life. 
The concept of our established church is occasionally misunderstood and I believe commonly underappreciated. Its role is not to defend Anglicanism to the exclusion of other religions. Instead, the church has a duty to protect the free practice of all faiths in this country. It certainly provides an identity and spiritual dimension for its own many adherents. But also, gently and assuredly, the Church of England has created an environment for other faith communities, and indeed people of no faith, to live freely. Even her fiercest critics could not ignore her seven decades of duty and service to the nation and to her people. The Queen has been known to make some of her most famous speeches on the event of her jubilees. It is, after all, a time of great reflection about the years that have passed. On the occasion of her Silver Jubilee in 1977, the Queen delivered a celebratory speech, reinforcing the pledge she made as a young princess back in 1947. At this moment of my Silver Jubilee, I want to thank all those in Britain and the Commonwealth who through their loyalty and friendship have given me strength and encouragement during these last 25 years. My thanks go also to the many thousands who have sent me messages of congratulations on my Silver Jubilee that and their good wishes for the future. My Lord Mayor, when I was 21, I pledged my life to the service of our people, and I asked for God's help to make good that vow. Although that vow was made in my salad days when I was green in judgment, I do not regret nor attract one word of it. On her golden jubilee in 2002, the Queen made another iconic speech, reflecting on the changing world. After spending much of her speech thanking others for their work in helping people, she again rededicated herself to servicing the nation in the years ahead. For if a jubilee becomes a moment to define an age, then for me we must speak of change, its breadth and accelerating pace over these years. Since 1952, I have witnessed the transformation of the international landscape through which this country must chart its course. The emergence of the Commonwealth, the growth of the European Union, the end of the Cold War, and now the dark threat of international terrorism. This has been matched by no less rapid developments at home in the devolved shape of our nation, in the structure of society, in technology and communications, in our work and in the way we live. Change has become a constant. Managing it has become an expanding discipline. The way we embrace it defines our future. Throughout her reign, 
the Queen has delivered hundreds of speeches when opening new buildings or presenting plaques. She has also made numerous speeches during important diplomatic events. In 2011, the Queen made a historic trip to the Republic of Ireland. On that trip, she made what Tony Blair's spin doctor, Alistair Campbell, described as one of the very best speeches in the political and diplomatic arena. She began her powerful speech speaking in Gaelic, sparking a jaw-dropping reaction from the then Irish president, Mary McAleese. Madam President, speaking here in Dublin Castle, it is impossible to ignore the weight of history. It is a sad and regrettable reality that through the history our islands have experienced more than their fair share of heartache, turbulence and loss. We can never forget those who have died or been injured and their families. To all those who have suffered as a consequence of our troubled past, I extend my sincere thoughts and deep sympathy. With the benefit of historical hindsight, we can all see things which we would wish had been done differently, or not at all. The following year, the Queen shook hands with former IRA leader Martin McGuinness a symbolic moment of forgiveness and reconciliation, which for many welcomed a new era of peace. Good. It went really well. Mr McGuinness was delighted, but not a convert. I I'm still a Republican. Martin, how was it to meet the Queen? Very nice. It was a hand of reconciliation and a defining public gesture of forgiveness and friendship. In her gracious acts of diplomacy, the Queen has played a significant role in maintaining what Prime Minister Winston Churchill referred to as the special relationship between Britain and the United States. With charm and wit in numerous speeches, she has continued to cement strong relationships with the people of the United States, as well as with the US presidents. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you and Mrs. Bush to London. Visits by American presidents have been memorable landmarks in my reign. Unlike in the United States, the British head of state is not limited to two terms of four years. <laughs> 60 years ago, Winston Churchill coined the term special relationship to describe the close collaboration between the United Kingdom and United States forces that was instrumental in freeing Europe from tyranny. So, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to raise your glasses to President and Mrs. Bush, to the continued friendship between our two nations, and to the health, prosperity, and happiness of the people of the United States. President. President. As the coronavirus began its devastating journey around the world, creating fear, uncertainty and panic, and one by one countries began going into lockdown, emergency powers were put into place 
severely restricting all of us and preventing daily life as we knew it. Restrictions kept us away from friends and family. Fear and anxiety about what the disease was and what it might do to the people we love filled the minds of the people of Britain and everyone around the world. In previous times of great distress, the people have looked to their leaders for hope and inspiration. And as always, the Queen stepped up to lead by example and to inspire hope when we needed it the most. She referenced a wartime spirit, a feeling and sense of togetherness against the common enemy that resonated deeply with British people. Those who come after us will say the Britons of this generation were as strong as any, that the attributes of self-discipline, of quiet good-humoured resolve, and of fellow feeling still characterise this country. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. In any and every part of the world, amongst people of all religious beliefs, and in times of great joy as well as difficulty, people naturally look for inspiration, hope, and leadership. The most powerful and enduring leaders do so by example, showing tolerance, fortitude, forgiveness, strength, understanding, and care. Our own Queen Elizabeth II stands amongst the greatest leaders in history, and her words of wisdom and inspiration will remain a powerful part of her legacy long into the future. For if a jubilee becomes a moment to define an age, then for me we must speak of change, its breadth and accelerating pace over these years. Change has become a constant. Managing it has become an expanding discipline. The way we embrace it defines our future. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it.